we're typically not big on participation from the crowd, but I'll start like this. If you're brave enough tonight to hold up your hand and affirm that you've never done anything in anger that you later or even immediately regretted, would you be willing to admit that tonight? Anyone brave enough to make that confession? I didn't think so. So our topic is certainly one that's needed tonight, and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for welcoming Amy and I here. Uh, It's uh, a joy to be with you, and um, we appreciate uh, this privilege to study God's Word together. When heroes falter, Moses loses his temper. I thought of a more sensational title if you want to send this out by social media or hashtag, the double knock on the rock that kept the doors of the promised land locked. You like that? I just thought that was kind of neat and catchy. Now, it'd be kind of hard to put that and condense it on a hashtag, but nevertheless, so we'll be in Numbers chapter 20 uh, tonight, but I'll go ahead and tell you with much shame, I confess that I have too often allowed my anger and my temper to make me, or let me rephrase that, it didn't make me, I chose. We make the decision in our anger to lose our temper, to say and do things that have hurt others, that I feel embarrassment and guilt for even to this very moment, and worst of all, to cause me to transgress the word of my holy God. When I was around seven or eight years old, an older cousin gifted me with what became one of my prized possessions of childhood, a compound bow, a bow like you use to shoot an arrow with. Now, it was nothing special. Those of you guys that uh, maybe do some bow hunting know that, of course, those bows are rated typically on their draw weight, how much force you have to pull back in order to uh, extend and stretch uh, to place the arrow on, then, of course, to release the arrow toward its target. And this one only had about a 20-pound draw weight, so it wasn't very powerful at all, but Since I'd watched the Robin Hood movie, I thought, you know, I would go out and be Robin Hood. And I hit the bullseye every time. Do you know how to hit the bullseye every time you shoot an arrow? You shoot the arrow, and wherever it lands, you just draw the bullseye around it. So without fail, I could hit the bullseye every time. But one Sunday afternoon, a preacher at my little congregation in Jackson County, his son was named Chris, and his daughter was named Amanda, and Chris was my best friend, and Amanda was my sister Paula's best friend. Chris and I were seven and eight, thereabouts, and uh, Paula and Amanda, they were around uh, five or six. And so uh, Chris and I took the bow out, and I was showing him my marksmanship, or lack thereof. I couldn't literally hit the broad side of a barn, but uh, we were shooting at something, a bale of hay or a piece of wood or whatever it was, and of course we would shoot and miss without fail every time, And uh, Paula and Amanda were standing back on the porch making fun of us like all good little sisters do of their big brothers. Well, I'd had enough. And they were standing on the porch in the doorway going back into our home. And uh, one of them, or maybe both of them in unison, let out a cackle or in some way, again, showed their uh, laughter toward my lack of marksmanship. And I spun around with that bow with an arrow already drawn back. Now it just had the little what we call field points on it. You get Some of you guys know what those are. They're not sharp. They're just made for target practice. But I swung around with that bow and after not being able to hit anything within a country mile, 
in my anger, not intending, but nevertheless, in that moment of fury, I released it. And guess where it flew? Directly toward my sister and her friend. Thankfully, the potency of the bow was so low, the power was so reduced on that childhood toy that they were able to jump in the house and shut the door as the arrow bounced off the door where they had been standing. What would have happened if it would have hit them? I, I don't know. I would like to believe that, of course, it would have caused no injury at all, maybe just bounced off them like it would have the door, but suppose it would have done otherwise. That's just one example, even as a boy, that I look back at with, again, great shame in a case when my anger got the best of me. Think about what anger and what losing one's temper has caused all through the centuries. Just if you're a student of history, history is littered with examples of conflict and war over the anger of one party or another, maybe both, not maintaining composure in a time of conflict or crisis. Think about the relationships. Think about the marriages and the way that they have been damaged, sometimes beyond repair, due to the anger of one or both spouses. Think about the children that have been hurt by the angry outburst of parents and even parents who have been hurt by angry outburst of their children. Think of all of the times when, again, siblings, I have known siblings that both claim to be followers of Jesus Christ who because of some issue in their past and the anger that it caused and the rift that resulted went to their graves, one of them, without having ever mended that time when anger caused that relationship to sever. Uh, think about your friends, maybe former friends, that in a moment of anger you said or did something that that person no longer can be counted as a friend. Coworkers and neighbors and on and on it goes. Relationships damaged because of anger and losing one's temper. Uh, you can think about even, unfortunately, we have to say it because it's unfortunately true that in the church, there have been many times when anger has caused great division and great hurt and great harm, uh, whether that be between the leadership and the preacher or the members or the deacons or Bible class teachers or whatever the case may be, Christians haven't acted as uh, they should. When I preached in Overton County, it was told me that as a matter of fact and as truth, and I have no reason to doubt the veracity of it, uh, that just a short distance away from where I was working, that a congregation a little farther down the road that a couple of brothers got into such a heated argument in the parking lot that one pulled a gun on the other. Now, luckily, he didn't fire. But think about losing one's anger with a Christian brother to the point that you would feel compelled to take action such as that. Well, again, we could go on and on thinking about anger and losing our temper and what great damage it causes. If you'll take your Bible, let's just walk through a couple of passages that you know well before we come to our main text in Numbers chapter 20. The first time that I read about encountering anger in Scripture, of course, is in Genesis 4. God had commanded Cain and Abel to bring forth sacrifices, and both men do, both brothers do. We remember that fact. The Bible tells us in verse 4 of chapter 4 that the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but 
He did not respect Cain and his offering. Now our God is not arbitrary, capricious, choosing one man simply on an artificial basis over the other, but we can imply, I think, with good reason that what Cain did was something other than what God had specified for him to do. And Abel had done that which God had commanded as it regarded the sacrifice that he offered. And yet the Bible tells us in verse 5, after showing his disrespect for Cain and his offering, did God that Cain was very, notice, angry, and his countenance fell. His face fell, literally. He was so angry, he was so upset, and we've seen the fury, perhaps when we looked in the mirror in a time of anger or when we were in conversation or argument with someone else, that that same sort of thing happened in their anger toward us. The Lord said to Cain, and here's a good question in verse 6, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. You know how the rest of the story unfolds. Although we're not told, Cain loses his temper. As I read verse 8, it seems to me a likely implication that as the brothers were in the field together, the Bible simply says Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. It's just my speculation that probably that anger that he had harbored both toward God and toward his brother grew into a resentment that became so strong like a pressure valve that we think has to be released, he releases it in the worst way possible. And with whatever means he had at his disposal, a rock or a stick or his own bare hands, or otherwise it matters little, the first set of brothers, one kills another, perhaps due, at least in part, to anger. If you turn to the wise man's words in the book of Proverbs, Solomon, just like any good father, certainly I've made it my effort to repeatedly try to instill the principles of this book into my sons through the years and urge them even still to read it on a regular basis. In his wisdom, Solomon said, for instance, in Proverbs 14, verse 17, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. That's still true, isn't it? Thousands of years later, a man of wicked intentions is hated. Turn a few pages over to chapter 16. And in verse 32, Solomon again says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. You know, sometimes we confuse anger with strength. I have to be mad. I have to show people, you know, who's boss and what's what. Not according to Solomon. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So we need to think about that as it regards what true strength really does and how it responds in moments of anger. Chapter 19, again the book of Proverbs, this time verse 11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Sometimes we feel like, well, anger, that's what's deserved in this moment. That's the only natural reaction. Again, the wise man says sometimes it's much wiser to overlook some things than to allow anger to rule the day and cause untold damage. Again, if Solomon be the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, that book in chapter 7, in verse 9, this counsel is given, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry. Why? For anger rests in the bosom of fools. 
Kind of the idea that there are people that it just resides within. And I've maybe made a statement similar to this. Perhaps you have, and if you've not said it, you've perhaps heard someone else uh, utter the statement, well, you know, I just have a short fuse. I'm just quick-tempered. That's the way that I am. I won't insult you folks that might have a certain color hair, but, you know, a red-headed person, uh, you know, they are generally labeled in that sort of way, fairly or unfairly. I know not really. Maybe even certain groups or ethnic uh, nationalities are supposedly more prone to anger than others, but all of that's nonsense. Anger, it's an equal opportunity for us to sin. And Solomon said, don't, don't be quick to be angry. Have it in your bosom, harbor it within, and you're really a foolish man indeed, a foolish woman. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 5, we well recall that Jesus said, whoever is angry with his brother, Matthew 5, 22, without a cause. Now, Jesus does qualify it, and uh, while it's not the purpose of this lesson, and I'm not going to address it at length, there are times when, in fact, anger may be appropriate, but those times, I believe, are few and far between. We know the instruction that Paul gives in Ephesians 4 to be angry and sin not. And there are times, uh, I believe, when in fact our Lord Jesus could in fact be labeled, I think, as being angry. Certainly he was always without sin. So Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you'll be in danger of judgment. You say to your brother, Rakab, you'll be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. There's kind of a progression and even though we may not recognize that term rakha, uh, probably again an insult that sometimes as our anger develops or as we harbor it and as it builds into resentment or something else, whether it's slow in its development or it's more rapid in its expulsion in our action, anger is something we must be extremely cautious about. James chapter 1 in verse 19. This was the text that I used for my first full-length sermon back as a teenager, uh, and it was uh, something that I needed then as I believe I was 15 years old. I still need it tonight. James says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be, here's the three points, swift to hear, hear and listen very quickly, be slow to speak. Sometimes this little slippery thing, it jumps out and it says things it ought not to say. And then he closes by saying, be slow to wrath or slow to anger. The word there, wrath, can be uh, translated either way. And then, interestingly, in verse 20, he follows it up with that last point by adding, for that wrath, that anger of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. And I've long looked at that and really tried to get my mind wrapped around what James was talking about. And the best that I can do with that passage is, when I'm angry, I'm almost, as it were, incapable of doing the will of God. Now, again, I know the Bible says that we can be angry and sin not, but I think James' state, maybe as a general principle, typically it happens that when we are angry, we do lose, as it were, almost a sense of control. And we, as a general rule, will say and do things that upon further reflection, or if we were to calm down and take a moment to reevaluate the situation, in a moment of tranquility, we would do better than we would in a moment of anger acting rashly and impulsively. That seems to be, I think, what James is warning us concerning. Now, those are, as I said, just a few of the examples that Scripture gives us regarding 
anger. And you could multiply those for sure. But instead tonight, our text as assigned is in Numbers chapter 20. And so I invite you to turn back to that passage with me. And there we will see our hero Moses falter when he loses his temper. To set the stage for what happens in Numbers 20, you have to realize that this is now the conclusion of the wilderness wanderings. The people have been wandering aimlessly in and around the wilderness of Zin, and they have now reassembled, it seems, in an area called Kadesh. And after these four decades, you can imagine their frustrations, their weariness. And uh, if this incident sounds familiar to you, then uh, there's good reason because when you go back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, you'll read that they're at basically the same place. And the same problem arises then that will arise in chapter 20 of the book of Numbers. As the people arrive in Exodus 17 verse 1, there's no water for the people to drink. The people contend with Moses. And their complaint is in verse 2, give us water that we may drink. Why Why do you contend with me, Moses said? Why do you tempt the Lord? The people thirst. Why is it that you brought us out of Egypt to kill us, our children, our livestock with thirst? And Moses, after just Weeks earlier, leading the people victoriously out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, cries out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. I wonder if Moses thought, What what have I got myself into? Lord, how are we going to fix this? Well, the Lord gives instruction beginning in Exodus 17 verse 5. Go on before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod, which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He names the place Massa and Meribah. Literally, temptation or tempted and contention or complaining. Is the Lord among us or not? That was the question they had to have answered. And God showed that he was among them by telling Moses, strike the rock, it'll give forth water, and it did so abundantly. Now, uh, certainly this incident in Numbers chapter 20 sounds very familiar in many respects to that one. But what we have to keep in mind is, of course, the people that there in Exodus 17 receiving that water all of them over the age of 20 would have in this intervening time have died out in the wilderness. For they had gotten uh, to see the promised land through the eyes of those 12 spies. Ten of them said, they're grasshoppers or we're grasshoppers. Those men in Canaan, they're giants. Surely they'll just stomp us to the ground if we try to invade. Joshua and Caleb, on the contrary, Caleb especially says, if God's for us, we'll take the land and he'll give it to us. This is what we've been going all this way for. But of course, the majority rules and those 10 men, along with all of those over the age of 20, die in the wilderness. And now in Numbers chapter 20, having been condemned, watching their parents and grandparents die as they wandered through the wilderness, now this new generation is back, as it were, on the doorsteps of the promised land, and the same problem presents itself in Kadesh. There is Exodus, or excuse me, Numbers 20, verse 2, no water for the congregation. So they gather together against Moses and Aaron. I want to point out to you what you see in verse 1 that's also, I think, of some significance. 
After telling us the whole congregation comes to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, the people stayed in Kadesh and just added almost as a detail, it seems of little consequence, but I think of great importance, Miriam died there and was buried there. Miriam died there and was buried there. Some of you that know me from other places know that uh, for a couple of decades, uh, I worked with Amy's father in the funeral industry. He owned the funeral home in Gainesboro, and so uh, I still maintain my Tennessee funeral director's license. And I can tell you from personal experience and observation, some people that have done some really, some very, I'll just use the word unusual, maybe to keep it tame enough, things in their grief. And one of the emotions that comes out in grief and sorrow most often is anger. It's just, uh, I guess you could say it a psychological fact. I'm stating it to you just from an anecdotal perspective as I've, uh, I've looked and observed and you know, tried to understand the psyche. I remember one lady, she uh, lost her husband in a tragic accident. And she came in to where we had his body. And of course, she requested to see him and we had to grant that request even though no preparation had been made like you would to have a visitation in a funeral service. Uh, we had just um, gotten him back from uh, the hospital. And I remember she went into the room and flew into such a rage that she went up to her husband's lifeless body and began to hit it like a boxer and beat on his body and screamed and wailed and cried and said, you can't leave me. You can't die. I won't let you. And she kept doing that to the point that she was actually about to start causing additional damage to the body that would have made our job even more difficult. And so we had to physically restrain her and remove her from the room in her anger and her sorrow and her, her grief that that was a very natural reaction. And I know that all of us have experienced loss and I, I don't want to hurt or be insensitive to any of you, but probably you've had some losses. Some of you of spouses, of children, of uh, fathers and mothers uh, and siblings and other family members. And you know in that moment sometimes how anger can almost boil up within you at the thought of the unfairness and the injustice and so many other emotions that just flood us uh, almost at an instant and seem to take over. So in the Bible, uh, this detail that Miriam dies... Here, although it's mentioned just in very short order and it passes on, I think it's at least noteworthy that we take some consideration of it. Now, let it be said that it's not justification for what's going to happen and the actions taken by Moses and Aaron, but nevertheless, it does provide us some context, I think. So I, I believe that's worthy of your, uh, at least your consideration. Further, what's of interest to me in the latter part of Numbers chapter 20 Aaron will be stripped of his priestly garments and he'll go up on the top of the mountain and die. And interestingly, the Bible says in the very last verse of Numbers chapter 20, the house of Israel will mourn for Aaron 30 days in order to process their grief. Later, as the book of Deuteronomy closes and Moses dies, the people mourn for him for 30 days. We have no indication that there was any time allotted for the people to mourn the passing of Miriam here, which is interesting. And uh, just something that I mentioned in passing. Well, what's the problem? 
The people, verse 3, contend with Moses. That sounds like Exodus 17. If only we had died when our brethren died from before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Why would you make us come out of Egypt to this evil place? It's not a place of grain, figs, vines, pomegranates, and neither is there any water to drink. That was the big problem indeed. Moses and Aaron do what they did before. Going to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, falling on their faces before the Lord. The glory of the Lord appears to them. The Lord speaks to Moses and hears his instruction beginning in Numbers 20 verse 8. Take the rod. You've heard that before. You and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together. Speak, not strike. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So just like their parents, this new generation complains. The same problem of not having water presents itself. Moses and Aaron do the right thing in going to God. Verses 7 and 8, the clear instruction of God is given. And verse 9, Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. He's obedient, at least up to this point. Keep reading. Numbers 20 verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he... Presumably, we think that pronoun in reference to Moses said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly. The congregation and their animals drank. They speak to the people, and the accusation that they make is not a, an unfair one, not an inaccurate one. These are rebellious, stubborn, hard-hearted people. and They had been just like their parents and grandparents before them. Now, I imagine the volume with which Moses uttered the words in verse 10 was elevated, just like I tried to elevate them. Uh, my voice when I read them to you. You don't say it meekly and mildly. Here now, you rebels. You know, I think he probably said it with a bit more vigor than that. Here now, you rebels. That's what you are. But notice the next question he poses. Must we? Did that we, the plural pronoun, include just he and Aaron? Is he including God? Or was it just he and his brother that he had in mind? It seems, perhaps, as we keep reading, that maybe just thinking of himself and Aaron must we bring water for you out of this rock? Now what's not told, which I find somewhat intriguing to consider, is verse 11, what amount of time elapses between what Moses said in verse 10 and what he does in verse 11? Is it possible that Moses remembering the command of God to speak to the rock might have thought, well, that's what I did. I said, must we bring water out of this rock? Here now, you rebels, God, I've obeyed that part of the command. And maybe he paused momentarily. I don't know. This, again, is just for your consideration. Maybe Moses was a little upset that God had not punished this generation like he had their fathers before them for their uh, constant complaining and mo uh, moaning and groaning and belly aching. Maybe he said the words of verse 11, or maybe he took the actions of verse 11 right after uttering the words of verse 10. I don't know what amount of time elapsed. But what I do know is what he did in verse 11. He lifted up his hand and with that rod, he struck the rock twice. God in his mercy did not withhold the water that the people needed. Water came out abundantly. The congregation and their animals drank. But verse 12, 
The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Here's his judgment. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Mirabah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed among them. Serious consequences for these brothers. Notice what the Lord says that I find very instructive. Because you did not believe me. You've encountered people I know, people that you love or work with or that live in your neighborhood and you try to discuss with them the word of God and the simple truth of the gospel and they'll affirm without question, with no hesitation, I believe in God. I believe in the Lord. I believe that Jesus came to this earth. I believe that he's the Savior. I believe, and they'll most certainly say that with no hesitation whatsoever. And yet they're unwilling to do what God says to do in the way God says to do it. Have you ever found that perplexing? I know that I have. And that must be something that we take from this context if we take nothing else from this episode tonight, from this place, point out to them, because you did not believe me, wouldn't... Moses or Aaron have ever been counted or evaluated as not believing in God? Well, you'd say, of course not. These men believed in God, but it did not show by the actions that they took on that occasion because they did otherwise than what God said to do in the way God said to do it. Now, that sounds so very basic and elementary, but isn't it exactly what the text teaches us? Further, he warns them, does God, and tells them even perhaps a more serious event, uh, a more serious sin, you did not hallow me. That's the way the New King James renders verse 12. You did not hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. I I tried to look that up and uh, different translations render it different ways. Some say you did not consider my holiness or you did not uphold my holiness. Folks, especially brothers and sisters, that's something serious for us to give our attention to tonight. Do we uphold the holiness of God? The holiness of God is not to be trifled with. And one way that the holiness of God is trifled with is when we take His Word and we set it aside and do otherwise. Do what we wish to do instead of what He's told us to do. And sadly, we live in a world plagued by religious confusion and division where that's done consistently and repeatedly by people who claim they believe in the Lord and love Him with all their heart and yet will not do as He says, nor will they do as He says. And that must be heartbreaking to our God even still tonight. Five minutes, He says. All right, let's think about some things here. If you turn over in Psalm 108, this is about really the only explanation. I said Psalm 108. Let me say it correctly. Psalm 106 In verse 32 and 33, recounting the sin of Israel, the Bible says they angered him, that is they, the children of Israel, angered him, we think probably that pronoun in reference to God, also at the waters of strife or the waters of Mirabah, same thing from Numbers 20, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit. Now, there's some confusion in that rendering. Is his spirit God's spirit or the spirit of Moses? I think it's the spirit of Moses because it says so that he spoke rashly with his lips. God did not speak rashly with his lips on that occasion, but Moses certainly did. If you turn to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 3, you can hear the heartfelt plea that Moses makes on that occasion. 
Now the people are in the plains of Moab, the Jordan River just right behind them. And he pleads with the Lord, does Moses, and say, Oh Lord God, you've begun to show your servants, your greatness, your mighty hand. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? I pray let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me on this matter. Go up to the top of the Pisgah. You can go up to the top. You can look around, but that's as close as you'll get. You did not treat me as holy. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 32 in some of his final oracles and speeches to the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Song of Moses, verse 51. The Bible says Moses is telling the people about how God had spoke to him beginning in verse 48. Verse 51 is the key verse. Because you tra- trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of nearby Kadesh and the wilderness of Zim, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel, you won't get to go into the land. Folks, obedience to God is a serious matter. Obeying God as God specifies is a serious matter. And I know we live in a time and in an age where people just scoff at that and they dismiss it. But we need to take from Exodus 20 the seriousness of that lesson. Now, you may say, well, how does anger play into all of this? Uh, Moses in his frustration, and you can understand it, at least I can. Any parent can understand uh, that at the end of a hard day, and uh, whether you've been with the children or maybe you just come home, uh, sometimes it's frustrating to answer those same questions over and over again. And Moses has heard them for 40 years But was his anger justified in disobeying God? It clearly was not, and it never is. You see, we have to understand that honoring God as holy by obeying his word, irregardless of our emotions or feelings or anger or frustration or disappointment or injustice or you insert whatever other word you want to put there, really none of those excuses have any valid merit to them whatsoever. Grace is still needed. Please understand as we leave this episode that uh, God is merciful still. I'm not suggesting nor pretending to say uh, that one transgression separates one from ever from God. Uh, We cannot take this episode and use it uh, as a way to try to imply Moses made one mistake and he was barred from the promised land. We make one mistake as Christians, we're barred from heaven. Please don't take that lesson. That's not what uh, the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ teaches whatsoever. But it does tell us the importance, again, of controlling ourselves, of exhibiting composure as we should. Now, I told you the story about my bow and about nearly shooting my sister in my anger. Let me tell you one more as we close. It's even worse than that. When I was a freshman in high school, I was playing in the gym with some of the other senior boys, and we were not really there to improve our basketball skills. We were there to impress the girls sitting in the bleachers. And um, I was good enough, I know it's probably hard to tell by looking at me tonight, but I was actually good enough to play with some of the older senior boys. And one senior boy, he was trying to show out. I was trying to show out to match him. And uh, so I got the best of him on the defensive side of the ball a couple of times, and I even finally stole the ball away from him. And I drove back down court, and I stopped at the three-point line, and I jumped as high as I could, and he jumped as high as he could, and I released the ball right over the top of his hand. And the ball made a beautiful rainbow. Nothing but net. Except it didn't go through the rim first. 
That's called an air ball, right? An air ball. And all the girls laughed. And my feet hit the floor and a four-letter word flew out of my mouth at the same time. And I hung my head in shame because I had just shot an air ball. And as I stood there listening to the girls laugh and the other boys run back down court, I still do not know to this day who ran by me and uttered these words. I thought you were a Christian. I have no idea who said that. I was still angry the rest of the game. I was angry for several days thereafter and reflecting upon it. And as that's been more than 20, that's been 30 years ago, I still don't know who that guy was. I wonder sometimes, I wondered in preparing for this lesson, you said I'm going to be here tonight on social media. Was it somebody that scrolled social media and saw that post and said, Alan Judd, he's going to speak on anger. Well, I remember that guy back in high school. I remember he missed that shot and he cussed so loud. Everybody in the gym heard it. He's a Christian. He's a preacher. I don't believe that for a minute. I don't know if anything like that ever crossed that, that man's mind or not or that boy that grew up, I assume, to be a man. But in our anger, we have to be so careful because sometimes the things that we do might in fact leave others with the impression we're not the children of God at all. What damage we can do and perhaps even what souls might be lost from the anger that we express. Thank you for letting me be with you tonight to talk about a hero that faltered, but hopefully to encourage you, uh, even as Moses uh, dealt with his anger, not in the most productive way, but we might be encouraged by the word of God to try to learn from his lesson and do better ourselves in our day-to-day -day lives. May God bless us each to do that.